Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Hey, hey, church, how we doing? Nine was louder. I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to say it. Sorry, guys. Uh, wow, you guys like really took that as an insult. I'm sorry if that offended any of you. Uh, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm a senior pastor here at FBH, and whether you're joining us for the first time here or online, we're, uh, we're thankful that we got you. Uh, last week, if you were here, you saw a man who was taller, thinner, and had a deeper voice. Uh, his name was Andrew Cromwell. He's a pastor uh, over at Koinonia. Him and I got to flip-flop places for the week, uh, and it was, uh, it was really, really exciting to do for a number of reasons. I think the first one, and, and one of the most important ones, is, man, unity in the body of Christ is incredibly important. You know, uh, we, uh, we, Andrew and I, uh, our churches, the, the, the salvific theology, those things that really, really matter, we agree on. There's some minor things that we disagree on, and that's okay, but there's unity in the body of Christ. So to be able to bring somebody else in like that, for me to be able to go over there and talk about the same Jesus and the same salvation from two different stages, that was Really, really cool. The other reason that it's important is because, uh, man, we want to have a, a plurality of teaching here at FBH, which means that we want you to not just sit under my teaching, um, while if you do, you'll get a lot smarter. Um, but, good, you guys are waking up. Um, uh, but the other thing is we want, to, we want you to be able to hear from, from numerous voices, right? We don't want it all to be from my point of view. You know, last week with Andrew and I, we kind of worked on the message a little bit together, but we came to two, on the same passages, we came to do two very different landing points on, uh, on the same passage. And that's why it's important to have kind of a, a plurality of teaching. And so uh, we're actually, in the coming weeks, man, we got an awesome slate of teachers kind of set up for you guys where you guys don't have to listen to me for a few weeks, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, and I get to, to learn from some other people who are kind of my contemporaries. And so uh, next week, we actually got Pastor Kyle. We're kicking him off of the guitar um, and uh, we're putting him into the pulpit next week. Next week, we're going to be talking about the Song of Moses. And so uh, it had to do with music. So we're like, hey, Kyle, obviously you should preach on that. Um, and then uh, the week after that, uh, June 6th, we got, uh, pa- or I was going to say Pastor Dave, former Pastor Dave, uh, but Dave Fox is going to be preaching in the pulpit on June 6th. June 13th, we have one of my mentors, Ed Azaki, who was uh, the uh, pastor of a community church in Kingsburg for the better part of three decades. Um, and then uh, after that, June 20th, June 20th, we'll have uh, Pastor Jeff. And so uh, we get to hear a lot uh, from a lot of different people people in the coming weeks from the same book that we're walking to, walking through in the book of Exodus. Um, so for those of you who are like, what passage are we going to be in? We're going to be in Exodus 14, so you can flip there, you can click there. I know some of you are chomping at the bit to be able to get there. But while you do that, um, I want you to think back to a time where you were incredibly fearful in your life, real, like, like actually scared, not like you're in your room and it's dark and um, you crawl into your sibling's bed scared, but like actually terrified in some way, shape, or form. Think, think about that moment. For me, I was 16 years old. Um, I had just gotten my license a couple months prior. I was leaving from my friend Caleb's house in my 1982 black Toyota pickup, um, and uh, I was driving in that truck I mean, it was state-of-the-art. That truck had the little dials. You guys remember the dials to get your radio station? You guys remember those? Yeah? Uh, Weird. Older people are shaking their heads yes to that. 
Um, so it had those little dials, right? I mean, it was my grandpa's truck originally, then my dad's truck, and then my brother got it, and then I got it. So it was that car in our family, you know what I mean? And so I felt it as my duty to get rid of that truck as quickly as possible. So I was like four months in, and I'm driving home, and uh, the, I went over a bump or something like that, and the dial moved a little bit. And so the radio, it starts getting a little fuzzy, so I look down at the radio, fix the radio. Um, and then I'm 16 and I got a new pair of sunglasses. So of course I need to make sure that I still look good. Um, and so I look in the rearview mirror, check out my glasses. And then I look down um, after checking my, myself out and uh, there is a car stopped in the middle of the road waiting to turn left onto a street. He was not in the wrong. He was completely and totally in the right. So I slam on my brakes. Weird. They don't have anti-lock brakes. I start skidding and then I, I did my best to, to, to rotate around, to steer around the car, um, and I crashed into the back of a very nice, I don't know how new it was, but it was a very nice uh, Jaguar uh, in the middle of uh, the town of Atwater, California, right across from the Foster's Freeze. Um, and uh, funny, it was weird. Uh, he totaled my truck um, because my truck was worth like $500. And so that's what happens. Uh, but he totaled my truck. Um, uh, he had to end up, he replaced his bumper, I think is really what, what happened. But I remember um, uh, somehow I ended up in somebody else's home immediately following that accident. Cell phones weren't a thing then. I mean, they were a thing, but I didn't have one. Um, it was weird. I got one a week later for some reason. Uh, but, uh, but someone was like, hey, do you need to use our phone? And I just, I remember walking into somebody's house. I remember using uh, their corded phone that was attached to the wall, calling my parents and being like, mom, dad, I got in an accident. And then somehow they magically appeared there a few minutes later. Like, I don't remember the whole conversation. I remember uh, just physically, I was shaking because I was so terrified of what had just gone down. I mean, I, like, I was in panic mode. I remember the police officer showed up and he's like, well, what do you want to do? And I'm looking at him like, I'm 16. Why are you asking me that question? I do not know what I should be doing in this instance. And so all I muttered was like, I want to wait for my parents to get here. And it was like, all right, sounds good. Um, and so we waited for my mom and dad to show up. They figured, but I remember it took hours for me to come down from that fear and that panic that I felt, right? And so today we're going to get an opportunity to actually look at the Israelites in this same state. Okay, they weren't driving a car, they didn't get into a car accident, but they find themselves in a state of fear and in a state of panic. And so, like I said, we're going to be at 14. We're kind of glazing over 13, but what happens in 13, I'm going to give you kind of broad strokes real quick. So 13 begins with God commanding Moses to set apart the firstborn males of the Israelites, consecrated for God. There's an interesting juxtaposition here between God, God asking the Israelites to set apart their firstborn and God literally just killing the firstborn of all of the Egyptians. We're not going to get into that right now, but there's a very interesting juxtaposition there. Okay? And then in God, in chapter 13, he is actively protecting and leading Israel. And then, of course, we have the great imagery in chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, where it says, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So God, in this instance, is actively moving with them. 
God is guiding them. God is leading them. God is pushing them forward. And Moses, in this same chapter, is very specific to say to the Israelites that they are supposed to keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. So what they're saying is like, hey, remember Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Like, you need to continue to remember this year over year over year, okay, as, a, as kind of a memorial of God's great works and God's great power. And that's how it ends, Okay, it ends with God essentially telling them, hey, look, remember everything that I did for you. Remember how I pulled you out of Egypt. Remember, like, you are my people. I delivered you from Egypt. Okay, Pharaoh was finally sick of you, finally gave you the boot. He kicked you out and he's like, I don't want you here anymore. Go. And so God delivered them and God's like, hey, all I want you to do now is I want you to remember this. Remember this time. And in classic Israel fashion and in classic fashion of our own, we forget about God and what he has done in our life. And because of that, we reap the repercussions. So I'm sure you have all felt immense fear at some point in your life. Okay, like I said, for me, it was, it was shaking and, and kind of incomprehension of what was actually happening after my car accident. But for maybe, maybe for you, um, it is just kind of the fear of the unknown. Maybe you're struggling with, with a health issue. You've maybe lost a loved one recently. Maybe you've lost your job. Okay, I know in the past year has felt more like a decade. I'm interested to see how, it, how uh, my aging turns out because of this past year, you know, and my, my progression to, towards, towards eldership um, in that way. Okay, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it is that, that maybe is, uh, is in front of you. But today we're going to see God deliver his people regardless of their circumstance. We're going to see God deliver his people regardless of his circumstance. So we're going to read a section of scripture that we're going to get through. We don't do this all the time, but one of the things we've been, I've been asking the church to do as we've been walking through Exodus as an act of reverence is to stand while we're reading scripture. So if you would stand with me as an act of reverence and worship to God as we read scripture. So it's Exodus 14, 10 to 14. It will not be on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. It says, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the, to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone and let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for your word. And God, today as we dig into the story of the Israelites and their fear and your eventual deliverance, God, I pray that that those seasons that we find ourselves in in life, in need of deliverance, where we wrestle with fear, maybe wrestle with the fear of the unknown, that we will recognize that you've delivered the Israelites and you will deliver us as well. We're thankful for you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, grab a seat, church. So 
One of the things that we need to remember is that the book of, of Exodus is not about Israel. Okay, we've been talking about timelines. We're back to Genesis. We're in Exodus now. And we've talked about all these people. We've talked about Abraham. We've talked about Isaac. We've talked about Jacob. Now we're talking about Moses, right? We're talking about all of these people. All of them are Israelites. They're slaves in Egypt. It is not about Israel. It's not about Moses, even though if you read it, it kind of picks up when Moses is born, right? It is not about Moses, and it's definitely not about Egypt, and it's definitely not about Pharaoh, even though all these people are main characters in the story. The story of Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt is meant to tell you something about God. Okay? The Bible, I consistently say this, I will consistently go back to this, the Bible is not about you and me. Oftentimes we read it through the lens of ourselves, right? Like, like, what does the Bible tell about me? What, what am I supposed to do in this situation? The Bible is about God, and the Bible about, is about his son and his deliverance of us. So the Bible has ramifications for us, but it is not about us in any way, shape, or form. That's one of the reasons that I really enjoy uh, reading through the Old Testament, because a lot of people think, well, hold on, if I can just learn about Jesus, give me some Jesus somewhere in there. Like, give me the gospel, give me Easter, and give me Christmas, because I want to know Jesus' superhero origin story of Christmas time. And then give me Easter when he's deli- delivered everybody, and then I'm good to go. Okay? The reason the Old Testament is important is because it teaches us about the character of God. Like, it is very, very serious that, 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 man, we get to understand who God is in a very real way in all of these circumstances, in all of these stories. Okay, and that's very true of the book of Exodus. Okay, so while Israel's suffering and slavery and their kind of deliverance through the 10 plagues that we talked about is a significant part of the book of Exodus, the real storyline is the declaration here that Yahweh, I am, the Lord is the one true God. That's the storyline here. He is the God of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac. He's the God of Jacob. He's a covenant-keeping God, and the most powerful nation on earth will not stand in God's way from drawing his people to himself. That's the storyline here. God is going to glorify his name on the earth, and he will use Pharaoh. He will use the Exodus in order to send a very, very clear message. Israel, Pharaoh, and the Exodus are kind of the canvas upon which God is going to display his glory. Exodus 6, 6 and 7, it actually tells us, this is the whole reason for Exodus. He says, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. That God intends to deliver his people. God intends to deliver his people. And not only to relieve them of the injustices of their slavery, but also to make his name known in the world. It's the same way that we as Christians don't do social justice for the sake of social justice. We don't do social justice for the sake of equality. We do social justice to glorify God's name. That's why we do that. And it's the same thing that we see here. God isn't going to deliver them just for the sake of delivering them. God delivers them to make his name known. God delivers him so his name would be glorified. See, these people, they belong to God. They're, they're his people. They are his precious possession. And God didn't deliver them just in order to abandon them. 
right? Moms, I'm pretty sure that you didn't carry your baby for nine months in your womb just to be like, yeah, I'm not a big fan of that kid. Right? Like, for the most part, that's not, that's not the case. You're like, oh, well, we popped out three of them, and two out of the three ain't bad. Right? That's, the, that's not the case. Like, like, God delivers his people, and his, like, his goal is not to just get rid of them. They are his precious possession. And even though Israel has just witnessed God deliver them over and over and over again, right? Like, like all they do, they are still struggling with the idea of fear. They are still struggling with the idea of panic. And they're still struggling with the idea of a shaky faith. Okay, now insert those things into your life. Every single one of us at some point have encountered this fear, have encountered anxiety, panic about maybe the fear of the unknown. Is God going to show up in my life? Is God going to deliver me in some way, shape, or form? Even though maybe you've been a Christian for the better part of 80 years, I don't care. Okay, Because of the fact that all of us still deal with the idea of fear, panic, and a shaky faith. Even though that we've seen God deliver us over and over and over again. The dust of the exodus hasn't even settled yet. Them leaving Egypt hasn't even settled yet. And Israel is going to face a huge test at the bank of the Red Sea. Okay, this is what oftentimes people, people think this is like the, the climax of the exodus story right? They, like, like Israel in this first part, it actually says in, um, in chapter 13 that they are on, they're on the edge of the wilderness. It actually looks like they, they kind of made a wrong turn somewhere, that God actually forces them to retrace their steps and go to this one kind of secluded place where there's wilderness on one side and the Red Sea on the other side. And God just says, hey, look, you need to, don't be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. So he says, stand firm, don't be afraid, stand firm, and you'll see the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. Like I said, they're on the edge of the wilderness, and at first glance, it kind of looks like the Israelites are lost. Because any intelligent person wouldn't, wouldn't say, hey, let's set up camp where we don't have any escape route. Hey, I know there's this big army that's kind of chasing us right now, but hey, let's get trapped between the wilderness and the, and the sea. That sound like a good call? So that way when they come out of the wilderness, we can all just go drown. Like tactically speaking, that's probably not a very, uh, very good call. It kind of looks like they got lost. Anybody ever been lost, right? Anybody? <laughs> Two of you? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. My favorite time, well, it wasn't my favorite time at the time, my favorite time I ever got lost, it was about like five years ago now, and uh, I was a youth pastor, I was down in Apple Valley, and we, we were really close to Joshua Tree National Park, about an hour away from Joshua Tree. Nobody really goes to Joshua Tree. Um, it's not like Yosemite, where everybody's like, oh, you got to go to Yosemite, it's so awesome. Like, on your way to Joshua Tree, it just still looks like when you get inside Joshua Tree, right? There's like really nothing that like super special or anything like that, except the night sky. That's the one redeeming factor of Joshua Tree National Park. It's gorgeous. It's actually one of the top 10 darkest places in the entire country. There's no noise pollution. And so I had this great idea that over the summer, we were going to take a night hike with about 50 students all about. It was going to be awesome. And it was during the Parasites meteor shower as well. So it was going to be a night hike, one of the darkest places. It was like a mile and a half hike. It was going to take us like two hours or so. And man, there were going to be meteors flying over. It was going to be 
Awesome. Great event on paper, right? So there's a problem, though, that happened, is that as I was planning, I thought, oh, yeah, this trail looks good, but I had never actually hiked the trail, even in the daytime. So then you put that in the nighttime, and then on top of that, when we were supposed to see really awesome meteors, it was cloudy, so you couldn't see any stars, so it was actually even darker at night. And then you had 50 kids, some of which who were like sixth graders who were way in the back, and some of which were like senior boys, like men, who were in the very front, who were like, I'm going to be the first one done, because that's what testosterone does to you. Um, we were stretched out over like half a mile. A mile and a half hike took us about four hours to do because it turned into about a four-hour hike. Mind you, we started this hike at 9 p.m., right? We started it at 9 p.m., and so we finished the hike. By finish, we got the last sixth grader into the van at about 1 a.m. We were supposed to be home at midnight. We were an hour away. We had no cell phone reception whatsoever. Man, you want to have some fun conversations with parents? Do that. We were completely and totally lost. We had no clue where it is that we were going. Like me as a leader, I was like, you have all trusted me to lead you to the promise. It wasn't a promise land. It was just a loop back to our cars. Like just like follow me and we'll be fine. And we got completely and totally lost. This is not what happened to Israel here. Okay, God was very, very, uh, very, very sure of what it is that he wanted them to do. He wanted them to look like they had no other options. But God knows exactly what he is doing here. He is ordering their steps and not just the Israelite steps. Okay, God is actually ordering Pharaoh's actions as well. God is like God will be glorified through all of this. This is how he this is how he's ordering Pharaoh's steps. Look at 14:4. It says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. God says, hey, look, I'm going to do this. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the, so the Israelites did this. God is ordering his steps. God is ordering the Israelites' steps. God is always orchestrating the events of the Israelites' lives in the same way that God is always orchestrating the events of our own lives. There are times that God puts us, puts us in situations that can be difficult. There are times he can put us in situations that are scary. And then while we may never fully understand all the reasons behind the circumstances of our lives, we can certainly take comfort in the fact that nothing, even the trials of life, are outside of God's control. Nothing. Now, you may not understand why God has you where he has you right now. And it may be frightening but even though that you're not in control, you can rest knowing that God is. When I got in that car accident, when I was 16, man, I was shaking, I was terrified, but guess what? The one thing that calmed me down, mom and dad came. I could rest knowing that someone else had this under control. I mean, I was gonna have to pay for it, but someone else at least has it under control. And I could rest in that. And I've often taken comfort kind of in the thought that, like, God, I don't know how this fits into your plan for my life, but I'm going to rest in the fact that you are in control of what's going on right now. Like, this 
fits your purposes somehow. So God, I, I want to glorify you in that. So the next thing that kind of emerges in this text is the way, in the, way, the way in which Israel embraces like this heart of fear and this heart of panic. And this is going to be a pattern we see repeated throughout the entire book of Exodus. When difficulties come, they're kind of quick to jump into this unhelpful mentality. Right? Fear can, can kind of quickly compromise our faith. More than anything else, I believe. Especially if you're like a Christian who's, who's, man, you've walked it, you've seen it. Man, circumstances beyond your control, things that you're fearful of, man, that will make you white-knuckle your life harder than anything else because you can no longer control it because you're afraid of it. And so because of that, our faith becomes compromised. We're no longer leaning into God. We're leaning into our own abilities at that point. And in Israel's defense here, Okay, the situation that they're in front of, it's not a good situation. There's an army coming after them, and they're pinned between the wilderness and the Red Sea. Like, they're thinking they are about to die. Verses 5 to 9 actually tell us that Pharaoh regrets letting Israel go. And so because of that, Pharaoh summons his army to bring the people of God back. Verses 6 and 7 says, So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took six hundred of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. I like to think that with officers all over them, it was like there were just people like on chariots. Like we couldn't even count how many people were on these chariots. They would just started like piling on at some point. There were so many people. But regardless of the enormity of Pharaoh's army in this sense, verse 8 reminds us that God, God is working behind the scenes. Like I said, we see, we see that God hardened Pharaoh's hearts. This military force, with all of its might, is still being orchestrated by God's command. Every single piece of it. And all of this is to set up the context for what comes next. All of it is. The focus of the text shifts from Pharaoh to the response that happens in the heart of the Israelites. Okay, verse 10 tells us what happened. It said, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. There's a pattern that emerges here that continues all the way through the book of Exodus. Note the pattern. They saw, right? They feared, and then they cried out to the Lord. Those three, they saw, they feared, and then they cried out to the Lord. Okay, this book is about God's response to the cry of his people, God, like his people crying out, but this book is also about the way God's people forget how responsive God has been to them. It's both and. You see, even though Israel had just watched Egypt get completely and totally humiliated by the 10 plagues, like humiliated by them, they quickly fall into a panic. Like they just saw God like bring forth frogs, like tons of frogs, and then darkness for three days. And then, oh yeah, every firstborn child was also killed in Egypt, if you were an Egyptian. Wow, uh, this, this 600 chariot army's coming after us, so I doubt, God, I doubt God can do anything about that. But what they saw with their eyes caused fear in their hearts. And no matter how great or how near the deliverance of God was, in, was in, in their lives, they were prone to this despair. Just like we all are. 
right? Even though the God is working behind the scenes and in our heads we know it, in our heads we believe it, right? We're like, no, but God is working, he's doing something. But then like our emotions and the things that we see, it gets a hold of us and then we begin to doubt God's goodness and the fact that God has proven himself to be trustworthy over and over and over again. What they saw was powerful enough to trump all of that. And so Israel's fear now quickly becomes this kind of irrational blame game. Okay, I don't know. Maybe you, maybe you have a spouse or you've had a spouse or someone that you spend a lot of time with um, and one of you has a bad day, right? You have a bad day and then that person who had a bad day comes home and then that person ends up yelling at the person who did not have a bad day. Anybody, anybody that happened, anybody have a stressful day and you end up taking it out on your significant other? Okay, I got one head nod. Thank you. You guys are lying again. And then you have that conversation where you're like, you know what? I know that wasn't, hey, I'm sorry. That wasn't about you. It was about a situation. And then I forgive Sarah for that. And then we move on. Yeah, I'm just kidding. It's always me. It's always me. Okay, but that's what ends up happening here, right? Like Israel in this point, they're like, hey, like I'm stressed. There's things that are happening to me that are outside of my control. And so I got to find someone else to blame this on. You know what? There's Moses. Let me pick that guy out. So like they begin to ask him three sarcastic questions. The first one of which is my favorite. The first question is, hey, Moses, is is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the desert? Like, as we said, they're like, hey, hey, is there no more, hey, Moses, is there no more ground back in Israel or back in Egypt? So you decided to move us here to kill us? Like, is that your plan? Or the next one of, what have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Or the third one, is it not, is it not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Like, at this point, they're like, this was a terrible idea. We're about to die. Okay, these aren't questions. These are, these are panicked statements is where Israel is currently at. You've killed us. You, we told you this was going to happen. And look what's happening. So faced with the threat of Pharaoh's army, any memory of God's victories before this have seemingly evaporated. They're gone. But the reason they're saying all of this is because what is written in the last part of verse 12. Because in their heart they believe, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. The people are suggesting that serving God is going to lead to their death, and it would be better to serve Pharaoh. But again, verse 12, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to remain in slavery than to die in deliverance. It would have been better for us to stay in our sin than it would be for us to be delivered by God. That's what the Israelites are saying right now. They're saying, hey, that big God who has delivered us, man, forget about that. I want to go back to my old life because I at least know the hardships that are there. I'm at least comfortable with that life. This life, I have to put my faith in something else. This life is a, like, it's a whole lot more scary as I continue to walk in faith in this direction. So you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to stay comfortable. I'm going to go back to, yeah, I know I'm in slavery and I know that's sinful and I know like I'm going to consistently go back to this, but I'm comfortable here. It doesn't require as much of me, even though I'm completely and totally enslaved. 
So don't miss the implications of that statement. Because what often happens when what you see leads to fear and what that fear oftentimes leads to panic, being afraid is one thing, but, but there's a, a, there are times when fear can cross a line into sin. And I think we see it here. Where because they are so fearful, they begin to disobey God and dishonor God and forget about God's goodness. Okay, the circumstances of the moment don't look good, but it's important here for us to look and learn from Israel's fail- failure. There's a reason why this is recorded in the Bible. It's a, to remind us that God is worthy to be trusted. So we have to try to move beyond to what I see and what I feel to what I believe about God. Because our eyes are going to deceive us. Our feelings are going to deceive us. The truth will not, however, And so we need to continue to remember what it is that we believe. Don't let my eyes direct my emotions or my emotions to direct my heart. I need to constantly live by faith, and it's found in the truth of the word of God. So Exodus 14, 13 is one of those verses in the Bible that you can kind of stand on and proclaim. It says this, Moses answered the people after those three sarcastic questions, do not be afraid, stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. So Moses, he issues a call for faith in the midst of their panic, in the midst of their fear. Okay, the charge here for the people is that God would replace their despairing perspective with with a firm trust in the Lord. So Moses tells them to do three things. He says, hey, don't be afraid. Stand firm. And see the deliverance of the Lord. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance of the Lord. And then he goes on in verse 14. It's a great verse in verse 14. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be still. Right? Trust in, like, the, the Lord will fight for you and you only have to be still. Now, what a statement and a lesson for us to be able to learn. And this isn't, don't confuse this with like health and wealth theology or name it and claim it or blab it and grab it theology. Like don't, don't confuse it with that of saying, hey, look, I had a hard time. I'm having difficulties, so I'm going to call on the name of the Lord and he's going to fix it for me. Look, and I just got to stand still and that's all that's going to happen. Okay, that's bad theology. Okay, because if you're trying to pay your way into God's blessings, you're going to be paying a lot of money. Okay, it's not the way this works. Okay, but God is telling him here, hey, look, the Lord will fight for you. And you have, all you have to do is be still. The storyline of Exodus, the entire message of the Bible, is that God is the one who delivers his people. God is the one who fights for us. That doesn't mean you're going to be absolved from difficult situations. That means in the midst of difficult situations, God is going to fight for you. And the amazing story of the Bible is that God rescues people who could never rescue themselves. That's the story of Scripture. Against impossible odds and a situation that looks hopeless, God intervenes. We see that in Exodus but we actually see it more clearly in the New Testament. We see it most clearly displayed in the message of the cross. The Bible paints a a dark and hopeless picture of the condition of humanity. Very dark. All man is sinful. All man is fallen. All man deserves death. 
Hell. Eternal separation from God. That's the picture that is painted. We are stuck between the wilderness and the Red Sea. There is no hope. That's the picture that is painted. Colossians 2.13, it talks about our dead condition, but then it also talks about God's deliverance. It says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing him to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The hope of the gospel is that God is able to fight my battle. That's the hope of the gospel. And what's my role? What's my role in my salvation? My role is to receive his work and my role is to trust him. My role is to be still and recognize what it is that God has done for me. That's my role in my salvation. My role is to put my hope in God's ability to be God. I have nothing to do with it. If you're in here this morning, you're thinking to yourself, how can I save myself? You can't. That is God's responsibility. My role is to put my hope in God's ability to be God. And that begins, uh, a, 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 that begins a conversation but extends into kind of every arena of our life. Romans 8, 31 and 32, it says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Exodus 14 and Romans 8, man, these two things are in the Bible in order to help us when what we see leads to panic. When we are fearful, when we are stuck between the wilderness and the Red Sea, those things can tempt us to become weak in our faith. God calls us to trust him. He calls us to live by faith and not by sight. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 7. God is going to, going to glorify himself through the destruction of the Egyptian army, but he is also going to glorify himself through his worthiness to be trusted. God is declaring his power and his grace to the world through this very moment. And what follows in the remaining section of Exodus 14 is the amazing deliverance of God's people through the parting of the Red Sea, right? This is, man, this is the climax of this story, right? They are on the precipice. There's an army closing in on them. They have nowhere to go. And it's remarkable to note here, by the way, right? The deliverance of Israel was going to come Uh, by God creating a path through the very thing they thought was an impossible barrier. They thought it was impossible, and God's like, no, this is your deliverance. Trust me, follow me through this. And verses 15 to 18 shows us the dividing of the Red Sea will actually simultaneously be a means of deliverance for Israel as well as judgment for Egypt. Sound like the cross? The cross will simultaneously be a means of deliverance for God's people and judgment for everybody else. 
But before the Red Sea is divided, God moves kind of in a protective position between the army of Egypt and the people of God. Okay, the movement of the cloud is this foreshadowing of many times that God is going to stand in between his people and their destruction. But Exodus 14, 22 says this, the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. With that one verse, we see the deliverance of God. The people of Israel walk through the Red Sea by this like providentially appointed path for them. At the same time, God protects them by preventing the Egyptian army from pursuing them. Right? Oftentimes you just think, oh, the Israelites just ran through the Red Sea. That was a big stretch. So why did the chariots catch them? I don't know. Let's look at 23. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots, so they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let us get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. God was like, hey, you're going to pursue my people? Here's a flat tire. Good luck. Right? Like God, is, like God is messing with them at this point just to protect his people. And so the Egyptians, man, they sense that they're in danger and that once again the Lord is working on Israel, Israel's behalf so like their hearts aren't in it. And the scene ends with the definitive difference between Egypt and Israel. It says in verse 26, And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back into its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. And in that signature moment, God, he makes a statement in verses 29 through 31. It says, but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the wall of water on their right and on their left. The day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared their Lord, feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Yeah, this moment, this moment will not last forever in Israel's heart. Your moment that you came to faith, it did not last forever in your heart. I saw it every single year at camps that I would go to. Man, kids, they would go to camp and they're like, man, I'm going to never sin again and I'm going to read the entire Bible tonight. And then I'll see you tomorrow and I'm going to make disciples of everybody. I'm like, sweet, man. And then a month later, man, that cooling period, because we forgot about what God does for us. We forgot about God's goodness. We forgot about God's promises. Life happens. We've heard that before, right? And so it doesn't remain. They're going to be tested. The Israelites will be tested in trusting the Lord again and again and again. And they're going to struggle to not give in to what they see and not give in to what they feel, just like each and every one of us. But the Red Sea crossing, this crossing will become a defining moment in the history of Israel. Almost as significant as the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament. This is their redemption. This is their deliverance. This moment, like the cross, is meant for God's people to be reminded that in the midst of their greatest fears, 
The God who delivers is the God who provides. Maybe you're like the Israelites today. I don't know where you're at. But there are things in your life that maybe seem insurmountable. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's things within your control because you're allowing your flesh. Man, it's just going to just does whatever it wants. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's things outside of your control. And so because of that, you're fearful. But whatever it is, like those, those things that you are wrestling with, you haven't fully given them to God. There are things in your life that you haven't given up. Maybe you're afraid of them, and because of that, you're nervous and you're panicking, and you simply, you don't know what to do. Here's the good news. You can do nothing. Seems like a weird piece of good news. Hey, you can do nothing to save yourself, but God is available to deliver you. He delivered the Israelites, and he delivered all of, through, all of humanity through his son on the cross. This is the message of Exodus. The message of Exodus mirrors the message of the cross, the deliverance of God's people. One of them was temporary, one of them was forever. And so for you this morning, if you have not made that declaration of faith, say, hey, I'm in. I recognize who God is. I want to make him Lord of my life. And there's nothing I can do about it. I would just ask you this morning as we pray in just a second, just just, just put that flag, your your flag in the sand this morning. And say, I'm just going to say yes. I'm going to accept it. And then every single day from this point forward, I'm going to choose to honor God. Because I believe there's nothing I can do in my life to save myself, but he can do everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for your son. I'm thankful for his deliverance of all of humanity. And even as we look back to the book of Exodus, we see these echoes of it. And we see that this is nothing new for you, that you are in the business of delivering your people. God, I just... I pray this morning that if there are those people who have not yet said yes to you, they're not, that they're, if there are those people who have not yet been delivered, God, that your spirit would just work this morning and you would draw them to you. If that's you, I just want to give you an opportunity. And at the end of every service with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, we pray what we call the ABCs. If you would like to say yes today and put your flag in the sand and say, I want to be delivered, you can just pray along with me. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That my sin, whether it be fear or something else, consistently entangles me, and I admit that. And I need a Savior, someone to deliver me. But B, I believe that you sent your son to deliver me. You sent your son to die on a cross on my behalf and see that I would choose to follow you every single day, regardless of my present circumstances, regardless of where I'm at, that I would choose to follow you forever. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.